welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. As usual, this is a Tuesday episode, so with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how's it going? Good morning, Bradley. Uh, I am in rainy Miami. Uh, I don't think it's going to rain the entire time I'm here, but it's raining right now. I'm in sunny and cold Manhattan. So you, you uh, have rain, and but I assume it's not 32. Uh, <laughs> not yet. Time, but it, my hands are still cold from the subway I just took to the office. Taking the subway, Bradley, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I take the train. Look, within Manhattan, if I don't have to be on the phone, I take the train, right? Because it's just right. much faster. Now, look, right. maybe at nighttime if it's going to be slower, but but generally speaking, from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. within the borough, you're always better off on the train. Yeah, I agree with that, of course, for sure. So we're going to do a few things today. Um, go through our usual mix of, of topics like we do. Um, and then I'm going to talk quickly about a personal project that I'm doing. And then the third part will be, will be joined by Lisa Quigley. Lisa, some of you may know, runs Solving Hunger, which is the division of Tusk Philanthropies that works on uh, legislation in different states to mandate new hunger programs like universal school meals. Um, we are in the mix of everything right now. So we've had committee votes recently in Oklahoma, in Connecticut, in um, Vermont. We got money put in the New York budget for universal school meals, and now the budget negotiations begin today, and we've got an ad going up on the air around that. Uh, we're still working on North Carolina, though if we do get something there, it'll be smaller. But there's so much happening, and the stakes are so high, and we are also now in a moment where universal school meals, I think, is getting its own independent momentum. Lisa and I will talk about this. But as a result, I think this is a pivotal moment in, in the child's hungry uh, kind of movement in, in the U.S. And so excited to have Lisa on talk about it. Good. That's great. So that'll be after after our discussion. It's going to last about 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll talk and minutes. then we'll bring Lisa on and then we'll just put that on the back half. Great. Okay. So let's start with the, uh, the topic du jour, which we've devoted two episodes to already, the Silicon Valley Bank. Um, obviously, the immediate problem for you and your business has subsided, but there seems to be a larger problem unfolding in the industry as a whole. I'm curious how you're monitoring that situation, what effect it might be having on the venture. Yeah, world. I would say yes and no. So, yes, obviously, you know, Credit Suisse was bought by UBS over the weekend to prevent, prevent them from failing. Uh, there's still concern that uh, First Republic could go down. There, there's been some, some transaction discussed there. Um, but overall, you know, when you read the postmortems and you read about the impact on venture capital, not on public bank stocks, right? But on venture capital, a lot of what you hear are things that, you know, are not bad conclusions, but they're things that have already been happening, right? So you'll see things saying, well, now the party is over and valuations will go down and entrepreneurs will have to focus on unit economics and profitability and margins. And like, yeah, but that's been the case now for like a year and a half, right? So everything that they're saying will happen now already did happen. And so to me, the question isn't even really, you know, what does it mean? But it's almost like just from a human nature standpoint, we always go through the same cycle, right? Which is we have a period of irrational exuberance. Everyone's trying to make as much money as fast as they can. And there's a huge party and everyone's cheering each other on. And then finally something falls off a cliff. Everyone panics. It's bad for a while, and then eventually goes back to good. Um, but we've been through this cycle, I don't know, really since the modern economy, right? So it's, it's not like this is anything new. And yet, whether it's the behavior by banks like SVB to try to take as much risk as they can to maximize their own profits, or VCs 
making unnecessarily risky bets on startups simply because they're just throwing money at things. Um, we're going to end up back in that period again. In fact, my business model to a certain extent depends on it, right? I'm making investments now at lower valuations that are not moving up anytime soon. So, so the return on my third fund doesn't look particularly great, but um, those companies should really hit the right moment when the economy gets back into a rational exuberance again, then all of a sudden, you know, the, the profit should be really significant. So um, I guess the question really, I'll throw it back at you, Hugo, is, is, is greed just too strong of a force to ever counteract? Um, <laughs> I don't know. That's too, that's too big a question. I mean, I think greed always has to be checked, right, by, by periods like, like we're going through right now, correct? Like the, 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 it, 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 it knows no bounds, so it has to get, I mean, I guess punished is a word, or, or there has to be a cost put to it. Um, so In theory, we learn from other things, mistakes that we make in our lives. Right. And we try not to make those mistakes again. Um, but greed, and maybe because it's we're talking, the economy is such a macro thing that no one person can put the lessons to use broadly on their own. But, you know, we're, we're constantly in this, you know, bull and bear, and boom and bust is just the same thing as people are making decisions uh, based on excitement or people are making decisions based on math. Right. And right. the excitement part always returns. By the way, it's more fun, it's more lucrative. But we always it always comes eventually with some sort of falling off a cliff like we're seeing right now. Right. Well, here's here's my question just on venture specifically. Like like there there are some who say that there are just certain conditions of, say, the last 10 years that have made the, the, the venture business really just the place to be. And a lot of those conditions are changing. Um, the certainly the low interest rates uh, that have been sort of worldwide is probably the biggest single uh, factor. Uh, but there's some others. Um, since we don't seem to be likely to be returning to a world of like universally low interest rates anytime soon, does that does that affect your decision making at all in terms of in terms of like as, as you look at particular investments as you, as you think about raising your next fund? Not really. Like as Jordan likes to say, we're not paid to time the market, right? So an investment decision that we make into a company that's early stage of seed or Series A. Um, interest rates should have absolutely nothing to do with it whatsoever. Um, when we get mm -hmm. to a point where that company is hopefully ready to IPO or have a big M&A acquisition, um, then it matters because that will help show how well or not the acquisition will go, how big or not the IPO will be. Um, but the stage that we're investing, no. And by the time that these companies are ready to go public, for the few that make it through the whole process, the interest rate environment will be different anyway. Right. You said last week that you didn't expect the political fallout from the depositor guarantees to be significant. Has, has anything happened in the last week that's yeah, changed that view? So. I mean, yeah. If you read the headlines, you know, you got Warren and others demanding investigations because she thinks it's morally wrong to refund depositors. You have uh, DeSantis and others saying that wokeism called this. And look, I'm not the biggest fan of wokeism, but I really don't see any connection at all to the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. Um, but the reality is that's what people on both sides say because they want attention, right? Elizabeth Warren is in politics because she desperately needs attention. Ron DeSantis is in politics because he desperately needs attention. So they're going to say whatever they're going to have to say, and the reporters who cover their worlds are going to cover it because that's their job. They have to write about stuff. But I would be really surprised if, if you were able to poll the average American and say, how aware of you are this and how much do you care? I think it'll be very low on both. All right. Um, 
Let's pivot to Trump. Um, this is likely to be a big week. There may even be significant news by the time people are hearing this about his arrest yeah. um, on charges related to his paying off of porn star Stormy Daniels. Um, these charges are being brought by the Manhattan District Attorney, Alvin Bragg. Um, let's let's talk about it from the Alvin Bragg perspective, since obviously the Trump uh, perspective is going to be and has been incredibly widely covered. Um, he seems to be welcoming this in a, in a sense. Um, is this just a, a pathetic Hail Mary from Alvin Bragg to no. rescue his own? Um, <laughs> no, I mean, it, it is and it isn't. I've got a, thoughts kind of going a few different directions around okay. it. So the first one is, why is Bragg doing it? Especially when he first took office, he acted like, and even announced at one point, that they weren't going to do anything, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, on one hand, it's a career-making thing. Right. If he does put Trump in jail, that's what he will be known for. Um, he will certainly get reelected probably for as long as he wants. So one is just opportunism. But 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 good. Two would be distraction. Right. So this is a guy who does not believe that criminals uh, are wrongdoers. And generally, he sees them as victims, of institutional uh, discrimination, as opposed to people who are hurting other people and should be locked up for that. Um and as a result, prosecutes very few crimes. The crime rate is declining a little bit thanks to the mayor being very aggressive, but Bragg is pushing it in the other direction. And I think he's starting to realize that that's not what typical voters want. And so he is trying to hide from that record and distract from it by coming up with the biggest sideshow possible. And there is no bigger sideshow. Um, than Donald Trump. Yeah. So though, I think those are the two records. Now, with that said, look, is Trump guilty of the Stormy Daniels thing. It's hard to imagine that he's not, right? Um, right. He would have not known about what was going on. Uh, of the various things he's being investigated for, whether it's the espionage stuff at Mar-a-Lago with the documents or election fixing in Georgia, you know, this is sort of the least of them uh, from what I can, just from my own interpretation and just generally knowledge. Um, but look, I have one very simple request when it comes to Trump or, or hope, which is just that he becomes ineligible to run for president again. That's all I really care about. You know, whether he goes to jail or not, I don't really care whether he drops dead today or not. I don't really care. Um, I just think that while it's unlikely he would win the election in 24, it was unlikely in 16, and he was the worst president we ever had. Um, and so anything that removes him legally from being able to do that, I think is good. Republicans are obviously all condemning Bragg uh, secretly. However, them secretly, however, a, a lot of them must be pretty happy about this. Oh yeah, if you, I mean, if if you're DeSantis or anyone else, if you could take this guy off the table, uh, it changes the trajectory completely of, of the election. Including, by the way, the real risk in the general election of so let's just call DeSantis the winner. Although, by the way, I don't know if you noticed this, but like. As we kind of predicted a while ago, that you know, to say this being in the poll position this far out is not necessarily a good thing. And you're seeing him now, you know, take take a lot of incoming when he does make comments that are not fully thought through or questionable, like his position now on Ukraine. So, um, so I, I think that's actually proving right. But overall, yeah, of course they're thrilled because look, you could see a world where DeSantis wins the nomination. Trump says that the nomination was stolen from him, which of course he would say that if he lost. And then if fact, he certainly will, maybe he'll say it from jail. <laughs> right. And if 20 percent of Trump voters stay home in the general election as a result, that's probably the difference for Biden. Right. Or whoever the Democratic nominee is, if it's not Biden. So. Um, so on one hand, uh, I, I, I think that let's say you're a Democrat, um, Trump in the mix might be your best shot of reelection of Biden. 
But at the same time, Trump in the mix means that Trump could become president again, personally. And I guess I'm not a Democrat, so maybe I don't feel strongly, but I would prefer not to take the risk of Trump coming back, even if it seeds a bit of an electoral advantage uh, that Biden would have otherwise had. Um, so just stepping back from all the particular issues for a second, it does look like the 2024 campaign is going to be, at least on the Republican side, pretty entertaining. Yeah. Um, do you do you enjoy stuff like that still? I mean, after like, can you just be like, yeah, it's going to be. I, awesome. Yeah, I enjoy, I enjoy watching the sideshow and kind of laughing at it. But, you know, I'm not a political junkie. I don't listen to political podcasts. I never, ever, ever watch cable news. I'll, I'll look at political if there's something relevant to what I'm doing that I need to know about, but otherwise I don't really care. So, you know, my consumption of the information about the primary is actually going to be much lower than a lot of people. But sure, when I open the Washington Post or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal and I see the insanity, that, that's fun. By the way, I like that in all cases, right? I mean, to me as an independent, I think both parties shouldn't exist. So generally, the more chaos, the better. Right. Um, Israel, uh, yeah. Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, is overhauling the judiciary, um, sharply cutting its power and influence. Explain the situation as you see it. And I, I guess you're a, you're a longtime supporter of, of Israel and, and yeah. how it makes you feel differently or, or think about a different course of action in terms of, in terms of your support. Yeah. And look. I'm not an Israel policy expert, but but like I think a lot of American Jews, I, I do follow it. And I've, I have two business in Israel and I've been there a bunch of times and whatever. Um, I'd say a few things. One is as a, you know, as, as the grandson of Holocaust survivors, and even my dad lived in the refugee camps in, in Europe after the war, you know, I have a very simplistic view of Israel, which is, Jews have been persecuted for the last 5,700 years. It doesn't matter what time in the world we're in, what culture we're in. You know, there may be periods like the United States right now or Germany for a long time before the 19, late 1920s, early 1930s, where it seemed very safe and, and very prosperous. Um, but it always, always turns. Now, maybe history won't repeat itself and that won't happen in this country. Maybe it won't be for another 100 years. Um, but to me, I think there's a definite possibility that either me or my kids or my grandkids one day will need what's called uh, the right of return, which means that uh, anyone who is Jewish around the world can automatically become Israeli citizens. And the reason why that's so important is once the persecution begins, for the first time ever, there's somewhere to go, right? As opposed to like people from Europe trying to get into the US and FDR sending the fucking ship back and all these people you know, being led to their death. Um, this is a country that will, A, gladly take you in, and B, they're just not going to tolerate another Holocaust. And if that means they've got to use nuclear weapons, they're going to do it. And if that means the whole world goes down, if, if, if it's either the Jews go down and everyone else survives or we're all going down, I think the Israeli view is we're all going down. And guess what? I fucking agree 100%. As a result of all of that, I have always been a very staunch supporter of Israel because my view is – the criticism that they face tends to be criticism from people sitting in the perch of their home in Brooklyn Heights or the Upper West Side um, who are not in the middle of that situation at all. With that said, here's why this is the first time in my life that it feels different, because it's not a question of Israel trying to function as a country and people all over the world trying to fuck with it because they don't like Jews. This is Israel as a country itself sort of imploding. Right. And their own structures of democracy and, and the economy uh, are falling apart. 
and it's because of not a divide between Jews and Palestinians or, or Israelis and Arabs. It, it's a divide between the ultra-Orthodox um, and regular secular Israelis. And some of the same flaws that we see in our own system here have, have jumped into the system there, where you have the ultra-Orthodox now has significant political power, and they live a very different life. They don't have to be drafted into the army. Um, oftentimes, they don't really work. They just kind of study Talmud all day, and they survive on donations from you know, subsidies from government or charities or whatever else. And this, like always, leads to a lot of anger and resentment. And Netanyahu, who is not a good person, but an excellent politician and a very smart politician, um, has jumped on this to say, you know what, if I can exploit the fringes here um, and come up with an issue like judicial reform that will appeal to them um, and will kind of get everyone else distracted, then my own personal problems of my own corruption trial and my own inability to form and hold a government um, maybe go away a little bit, right? And so th this to me is the most dangerous time, at least in my lifetime, I I've seen in Israel. Um, I, I hear Israeli entrepreneurs and, and VCs talking about, you know, companies leaving the country. Because um, keep in mind, if you are a successful tech entrepreneur in Israel, you can live anywhere in the world right now, right? Now, yes, you may have to go back there eventually because there is a pogrom in, in the U.S. or whatever else. But you know, right now, everybody wants you. If you're going to bring jobs and money and, and innovation to a country, people are generally going to take it. So the people who are in Israel who have the ability to really hurt the economy by leaving are highly mobile and highly desired, right? And so I think you could set off a domino effect where the internal politics have become so distasteful that the underlying structures of the democracy itself start to become weakened, like the judicial reform proposals by Netanyahu and his people. Um, and then companies and people start leaving, and that's what really damages the Israeli economy. It's kind of like when we talk about here in New York, you know, if crime gets high enough, if quality of life is bad enough, the 50,000 people that pay 50% of the taxes in New York City can easily move to where you are in Miami or to Texas or wherever they want, right? They are highly mobile people. Um, I think Israel is now confronting its own version of that. So uh, one, uh, I guess, a piece of good news in all this is that Netanyahu, like Trump, is an old man, um, not likely to live forever any more than anyone else. Um, is, it, is this a, a, a political sort of dynamic that outlives Netanyahu, like, I guess the question is similar in the United States. Like, does does Trumpism go with Trump? No, does Netanyahu, mean, it doesn't. It, look, I think that Netanyahu and Trump are particularly good at kind of fanning the fires and the flames and all of that. So it feels particularly pronounced. But look, there weren't. Um, it's not like angry white, rural, lesser educated working class voters weren't angry before Donald Trump came along, right? This is a constituency that's been very angry for a very long time. Trump was extremely skilled at mobilizing them. Um, the problem of the Orthodox having one way of life in Israel and everyone else having another, especially with everyone else having, having more responsibility, more duties, you know, being treated in some ways unfairly because they're just, they, they don't get the same leeway that the Orthodox get. That problem with not, if Netanyahu dropped dead today, that problem doesn't go away. Now, it might not be quite as polarized because you don't have a leader who is so good at sort of making things as difficult as possible. But no, that they're going to have to solve that problem and deal with it one way or another. This is uh, going to be one of our super hard pivots right now because I'm going to ask you a baseball question. Um, 
Edwin Diaz, uh, the closer for your beloved Mets, um, was injured in a celebration. He's out for the year, um, out with his, what did he make? Eight and a half, 18 and a half million dollars, uh, his contract for this year, which I gather the Mets are going right, to recover right. it. it, was, it was a, I think it was maybe a hundred over five years. It was a right. record for a closer, but look, he's also been the best closer in baseball. So it wasn't, I don't think anyone thought it was a bad signing. No, not until he got hurt. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Tell me about just – I just want your personal feelings about it, just your personal uh, feelings. Anguish. I mean, like, I have been so excited for this baseball season, so excited for the Mets to finally be a truly competitive World Series contender. And one of the top three or four players on our team, the top closer in all of baseball, is out for the year, not even because you do anything on behalf of the Mets – but he was pitching in the World Baseball Classic. And then in a celebration post-game is when he got injured. He didn't even get injured. Yeah, no, it's devastating. Just the whole uh, – everything about it. So, look, I think that we are a worse team. I mean, I think that we're probably a few wins worse than we were at least without Diaz. And I don't assume that he'll be back for the playoffs should we even make it. And, you know, you're in these high-leverage situations in October – having a top closure, like ask the Yankees, you know, one of the reasons they won all those world series because they had Mariano Rivera. Right. And that was a yep. huge, huge advantage. Um, and we, we would have had that. I'm not saying that Diaz is as good as Rivera, but he's the best there is right now. Um, and now we don't. So yeah, look, Brandon Nemo's hurt already. Uh, Quintana's out till July, which probably means the end of the whole year too. So um, it has not been an auspicious start to the season for the Mets. Will it change the fact that I will be there on opening day on April 6th and 30 more times after that? No. Um, but I have noticed that my life is better uh, and more enjoyable when in August and September and October the Mets are playing well and everything is competitive and, and, and has stakes as opposed to being there being out of it by July. It's just sort of an afterthought. So, yeah. Well, Bradley, if it's any if it's any consolation, the Yankees are riddled with injuries as well. They, they are. Uh, in fact, you know what? Either in my old age, I've just learned more empathy or maybe because of the Diaz thing directly, but I have not celebrated the Yankees' injuries. Uh, <laughs> in That's so large of you. Before. So large of you. Yeah, so, I've, so, I've really so grown great. as a person. Um, okay, we have two last things. Quickly, yeah. your recommendation for this week. Yeah, so also sports-related. And this is kind of obvious, and it's sort of a hard thing to recommend because you can't predict it completely. But I was at the Garden on Saturday afternoon to watch the Knicks play the Nuggets. Uh, and it was Did awesome. you go with Howard? Uh, no, I went with my sister, Josh, and their son, Ben. It was my Hanukkah gift to Ben. Oh, nice. uh, we had really good seats. And although you know, we were kind of in the folding chair part, and so there's not much elevation from each row. And this dude with yeah. the biggest fucking head was sitting in front of me. And I literally <laughs> had to watch the whole game leaning to the left or to the right because I could not see around this guy's head. You can't complain about the size of a man's head, too. That's That you can't do. You no, know, I didn't, like, ask him to leave or anything like that. But, like, you know, it really did uh, – it, it was a, a, an impediment. Um, but, you know, the Knicks are playing really well right now. And they've got a couple of players, especially Jalen Brunson, who are just genuinely exciting, dynamic players. Um, the R Nuggets have the best record in the West. Jokic is the best player in the NBA. He was the MVP the last two years. He'll be the MVP this year again, most likely. Um, and we won. And the energy was just so incredible that there is really nothing like it. I have never been to a sporting venue 
that quite captures the energy of Madison Square Garden when the Knicks are playing well, even in a regular season win, which just means the last few five years or so, I have not, not only did I not make an effort to go to the Garden, I even gave up my season tickets because it just felt like an unfun, huge waste of money. Um, and I am glad that they're back. And now that the Knicks are playing better, uh, I suspect I'll be spending more time at MSG. So it's, I guess the recommendation okay, so is... That's a weird So I should go on Wednesday. They're playing down here in Miami on Wednesday. I should go. Oh, you should go for sure. I also saw the movie Cocaine Bear, which was like, okay. Okay. That's not a recommendation. Don't, don't no. tell us about Cocaine Bear. Let's hear about your special project, but make it quick because we got to get on with Lisa. All right. Yeah. So um, I think maybe I mentioned this podcast before, but I wrote a novel. Um, it is called Obvious in Hindsight. It is about a campaign to legalize flying cars in New York, Los Angeles, and Austin. Uh, with on one side is the startup and the ruthless consultants like us, and the other side is Uber and Taxi United against it, the Audubon Society, the transit unions, the socialists, and the Russian mob. And it is about how the campaign unfolds in all three markets, all the crazy shit that happens because it's flying cars, you can imagine. It's a little fantastical, but the point of the book hopefully is to show how and why decisions are made in both tech and in politics. Um, and yes, the setting is, you know, 10, 20% exaggerated, but it's not that exaggerated. Um, and I think it at least delivers the message in an entertaining way that people will want to read. And the reason we're talking about this now is the book was announced last week. Uh, so Post Hill Press is the publisher, Simon Schuster is the distributor, and they put out their list of, um, of fall books. Uh, this is a new imprint within Post Hill, Regalo. So it is their first slate of books um and we're one of them and now that it's public information i'm just really excited i have always always wanted to write a novel um i finally did it it was a lot of work it was hard but um published it i hope people like it i don't know if i'll write another one again or not but uh it was a real kind of life goal for me um and i, and I feel very good about it well, we will be talking more about this, obviously, as the publication date looms. And now hang on for Bradley's conversation with Lisa coming up in just a second. All right. Welcome back. Although I guess welcome back would imply we have ads, which we don't. So this is probably three seconds after you finished hearing me say the last part of the podcast. But um, Lisa Quigley runs Solving Hunger. It's a division within Touch Philanthropies. And a lot of stuff is happening right now in real time. And I wanted to bring her on to kind of walk us through what's happening with the five campaigns that we're running, what's happening with Universal School Meals more broadly, and kind of what she thinks this all says about our politics today. So, Lisa, thanks for joining us. Great. Thanks so much for having me. And I should mention for the audience that don't know you, that you've been on a few times already, um, Lisa spent the vast majority of her career as a chief of staff. Uh, for Congressman Jim Cooper in Washington, D.C. Jim is a moderate, was a moderate from Nashville. Um, Lisa, I think, ran for Congress once. Uh, so knows politics as pretty much well as you, anyone's going to know it. So so when we talk about this, she, she knows of what she speaks. So first start off, what are the campaigns that we're running this year? Yeah, so we're running um, some really interesting and diverse campaigns. Um, the first one, New York, um, your home. Uh, we had some really great developments last week when the Assembly and the Senate both put full funding for $280 million a year in their, um, you know, quote, one house budgets. Um, those will are their suggestions and um, recommendations to the governor. And so we are now, 
you know, embarked on an effort to make sure that everyone knows how important this is um, and that New York really can't lag behind the other states that are, um, you know, really moving forward on universal school meals. Um, we also are running um, a second campaign in Vermont. Last year, we um, helped them get universal school meals for one year. Um, this year, the effort is to help uh, that become permanent, um, and that campaign is going really well. Um, we also have a campaign in Connecticut. We have two campaigns in Connecticut. We've won one already, um, which was to restart school meals for this school year. They had come down nationally last fall, and it was kind of a disaster all over the country. And in Connecticut, they have such a big income inequality that you found that schools and families were just totally scrambling to try to figure out if they could get their kids fed. And it was so difficult that um, Governor Ned Lamont um, actually signed an emergency certification to restart school meals in Connecticut for this school year. And now we're working with them to try to convince them to make that permanent as well. Um, we have two campaigns in the South, one in North Carolina and another one in Oklahoma. And I'll mention that in Oklahoma today, they may have a vote on the House floor. Um, in both of these states, it's not for universal school meals, but it's for expansion of school meals. Um, and Oklahoma is uh, incredibly interesting because their efforts there passed out of the House Appropriations Committee two weeks ago unanimously, 37 to zero. Um, and so we're expecting great things in the House this week, and then it'll move to the Senate where we have really great leaders um, in um, on that side um, of the um of the government and it should be um, good. And we're really focusing on, um, you know, helping them um, do what they need to do in Oklahoma since one out of five kids there is um, food insecure. Um, and, and then finally, I mean, I just, I can't um, not mention and maybe should have been headlines. These actually were not campaigns that we were um, involved with, um, but in Minnesota and North, and I'm sorry, New Mexico last week, um, both of those legislatures and the, the governors have agreed to do universal school meals. There was an incredible bill signing that um, Governor Tim Waltz had last week that has gone viral because it was just so amazing and cute um, with all the kids surrounding him and um, hugging him. And he looked at one point like he was about ready to burst into tears. So um, that kind of makes one feel good. Um, and then we expect a bill signing in New Mexico this week. Both of those governors had put universal school meals in their budgets. And so those are being realized. They become the fourth and fifth states um, to adopt uh, permanent universal school meals. And let's say we win all of our campaigns this year. How many will we have? How many states will be getting your school meals? Uh, well, you're setting the bar very high, Bradley, uh, for me. But if um, we won all of ours, then we would be at about 10. Um, and then, you know, there are other campaigns that could be sleepers. You know, I, I want to mention that because I think they deserve the credit for this, is that the governors of both um, Wisconsin and Michigan have both put universal school meals in their budgets. Um you know, now it's a matter of convincing their legislatures, but, you know, this is a trend. It is so needed. It is catching on and really faster than I think we even thought. 
right? So, you know, we've done some polling most recently, one in North Carolina, I guess, are we in the field in Connecticut right now? Um, we, we, we will be <laughs> within yeah. days. All right. Um, what are we, and then we've seen some polling, some other states too. Um, how do people, voters feel about this and, and what's the split among parties? You know, it's overwhelmingly popular. Um, the overwhelming um, uh, result is that people across all political leadings, across all age groups, which I was really um, interested in because older voters over the age of 65 um, really support universal school meals. And, and these are people that you know, probably don't have kids in school, um, but it's very, very popular. Um, and what we found in um, some of the polling that we did in North Carolina is it was very popular with evangelicals. Um, and so, you know, we're really um, emphasizing that feeding kids is one of the most basic things that you can do to set them up for success. And that's not like a Democrat or Republican thing. That's just kind of like a decent person thing. And it's really keeping on. If you were making a list of like, what are the top five things government should do? Like, how would feed hungry kids not be on that top five, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, that's what we're finding. And even when you um, tell the respondents to the poll, you know, how much money it's going to cost, because everything costs money, right? And after a while, a million this or 30 million that, like they sort of lose track of like, you know, how much does this really represent? Well, what it actually represents is usually a tiny percent of, of, of 1% of a state budget, like one-tenth of 1%. So we're now seeing, like you said, Minnesota and New Mexico, there are states and governors that are putting this forward without someone like us prompting them to do so or funding and running an aggressive campaign in their state. Um, what do you think has changed kind of cognitively and norm normatively about school meals? And what does that say for the other states that haven't done it yet? Well, for your listeners, let me just um, give a couple of facts that will kind of help back into the answer that, to that question. There are about 50 million K through 12 public school children in the United States, and 52% of them already are eligible for free and reduced price meals. And that basically means that we have a lot of poor kids in our country because the eligibility levels are actually so low and people are kind of shocked when they hear this. For example, if you're a family of four and you make $1 more in your family income of $36,076, you don't qualify for free meals. Um, it's a little higher, um, $51,400. Um, that's the, the cap for qualifying for reduced price meals. But these are really shocking numbers. And what we then found during the pandemic, when the response from the federal government, one of the first responses from the federal government was just feed all the kids in school, right? Let's stop having poverty tests. Let's stop having them having to fill out these complicated forms, is that there was a huge uptake in, in school meals. So 50 million kids, right? You know, 26 million are eligible. About 20% of them are, are too ashamed to take the benefits. So you're talking low 20s that take it. But guess what? During COVID, when food was offered for all children, 30 million children received meals. 
So when the federal rules changed sort of back to pre-COVID days last fall, then we saw you're back down to 20 something, you know, low 20s kids that are taking uh, the meals. So essentially you have 10 million kids who needed to be fed at school during the pandemic, and now they're not getting fed in school. Yeah. So uh, let's just go into the anatomy of, of one campaign to kind of break down how this stuff works, and then we'll wrap it up. But so New York, uh, last week, the both the Assembly and the Senate in their own budgets each included $280 million for universal school meals. Uh, there are two and a half million kids in New York uh, who are at school and 1.1 million already get meals because they're in New York City. New York City already has universal school meals. The other 1.4 million kids do not. Um, so $280 million, relatively small amount of money in a $200 billion budget. It leverages well over a billion dollars in like 1.3, I think, in federal funds uh, to be able to feed these kids. And yet, despite all that, we're not 100% confident this is going to emerge at the end of the budget. You've got um, the governor submitted her budget, put in nothing for kids. The legislature put in a lot of money for kids, but they also put in a lot of money for other stuff, too. The budget negotiations begin today. They're supposed to be finished and voted on by March 31st, so uh, a little less than two weeks. And so we've got roughly 10 days to make sure that when they make changes and cuts and everything else, the school meals is not one of them. How are we doing that? Well, you know, what we're doing um, at, we're part of a coalition, first of all, um, and helping to drive that coalition. It's made up of lots of organizations in New York, um, organizations that have kids at the forefront, their education groups, their business groups, you know, that really have become convinced that this is the way to go. We saw that it worked during the pandemic and now it's not working and school meal debt is really, really piling up. So we're not only are we part of that coalition, but we also um, have um, decided to go ahead and um, put the pressure on Albany, right? We're going to put the pressure on Albany and remind them how important it is, you know, to feed kids, that kids are going hungry, like a million kids, you know, in, in New York state are going to go hungry if we don't step up and make sure that they get, you know, breakfast and lunch um, every day when they go to school. So um, two things. One is to the listeners, this is that moment in politics and government where people oftentimes take their foot off the gas when they should be pressing twice as hard, right? So we had a theoretical win last week when the legislature put all that money in. Um, the normal response would be, okay, it's now in a, a closed-door meeting, three legislative leaders and their staffs, and you know, hopefully we will emerge with as much money as possible. And I think for a lot of other you know, issues where that there's been funding included, that's pretty much their plan is not to make anybody mad. Um, to me, it's the opposite, which is like, this is that moment where if you make a lot of noise and they feel like there's a political price to be paid for not funding school meals, or if they feel like there's an electoral benefit to be had if you do so, then these will hold, make it through the negotiations. And if you don't, the 280 million will be come down to 50 million and then Everyone will pretend like it's a win because, oh, it's new money for the kids and we never had this before and whatever else. That's bullshit. It's a fucking massive loss. And so we're being really aggressive, by the way, with people who have said to at least me, you shouldn't do that. You're going to piss someone off. Um, I think people on our team might believe that as well, but, but that's not how we're going about it. So um, let's go through all the different tactics that we think are necessary in this type of situation. So ads, uh, what are we doing there? Yeah, so we have get, got digital ads. Um, we've got an aggressive digital ad campaign that will start within the next 24 hours. 
Um, it's going to be um, in all the places where um, legislators and the executive branch would expect to see them. Um, and they're, they've, they've got a great message, right? They've, um, we've actually had people saying some pretty crazy things about how there are no hungry people in uh, the country. And so we're going to be using um, some of those to make the point that, no, it's right in front of your face. And if you're going to side with those people, you know, you're, you're wrong. Um, Let me just jump in real fast with with a little more detail on the ad, because I, I think it's different than most ads you see. And I think that's reflective of, the different philosophy that I just laid out on how to handle these situations, right? So there was an, luckily, his name is not taking up space in my head, but there was an idiot state senator in Minnesota who during the debate over school meals in the Minnesota State Senate didn't just oppose it, but he said there's no such thing as hunger. He's never had a hungry person in his life. And then he mocked kids uh, who claim to be hungry. Right. And so what the ad does is it shows a clip of him on the Senate floor looking like a moron. And Chiron is is the technical word for just text that you see in an ad. All it's a black screen that says this guy is an idiot. There are over a million kids in New York State alone that don't have enough money for, for meals. Albany, don't be like this guy. Fully fund universal school meals. It is definitely a harder-hitting uh, ad than most. Um, it is not hitting the legislature or the governor just yet in Albany. Um, but I think from our view, everyone puts the same fucking digital ads up, whether they're trying to like put a little bit of gentle pressure or be nice to the legislators or the governor. And I think those go in one eyeball and out the other. Um, and I think that if we want this to actually have some value, um, it's got to be something that it takes advantage of something that went viral last week. Um, and that is hard hitting enough for people to remember. And we're also putting six figures behind the buy itself. Um, let's pivot to earn media. What are we doing with ed boards, articles, stuff like that? In New York or uh, just in general? No, let's, let's stay with New York just as a case study here. In New York, uh, you know, um, in, in, in part really because of the big push that, you know, we made, um, there was a really strong editorial yesterday in the Daily News. Um, we have really focused on um, editorials in upstate because, again, New York City already has universal school meals, so our focus really is on kids that are outside of New York City. Um, the earned media has been, has been, I think, very strong in New York. Um, I must say that in, 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 if you are going to compare that to another state, which obviously New York is big and brash and lots of people and much bigger than Connecticut, but like you look at a state like Connecticut and there have been 43 stories about school meals and school meal debt and the need for universal school meals since January 12th in Connecticut. It's just really given, there's a a real um, sort of hunger for solving this problem there, so to speak. And and then the other part to me is is the lobbying effort of which we have both external lobbyists and then a bunch of people within Tusk Strategies who are also registered as lobbyists for Tusk Philanthropies um, who are just banging the shit out of the governor's office, especially uh, since the legislature put the money in the budget already, uh, there's less to push them on. Um, and you know what? I, I totally see the world where people say this is going to backfire. We're calling them too much. We're bugging them too much. We're annoying them. They're not going to like it. And I, I just got to say, because I'm kind of using this case study as a, as a teaching moment here. Um, that's bullshit too, right? At the end of the day, who cares if some 
bureaucrat in the budget office or the governor's office likes you a little more or likes you a little less. The only thing that's relevant is trying to achieve the goal that you have in front of you, which you need their help for. And in this case, it's at the fundamentals it gets, literally feeding children. And so to me, again, this is an example where our lobbying is going to be more aggressive than I think you're going to see other people who have budget items that they're trying to make sure stay in. Um, it's probably more aggressive than maybe everyone on our team would have recommended. Um, but my view is that, you know, I'd rather piss people off and do everything possible to feed more kids um, than have a bunch of people who I don't give a shit about anyway, like me, um, and drop the ball and pretend that a loss is a win. So um, point of all of this is really being not so much what are the steps that we're taking, but in these moments, uh, this is a time where you step up, where you double down, and when all of the experts tell you not to do it, oftentimes you got to know what you don't know, um, and you have to be willing to listen to people who know more than you do. And there are times you got to trust your gut. Uh, we will see if my gut is right or wrong, um, but that's what we're doing here. All right, Lisa, thank you uh, again for all of this, and uh, we'll have you back on in the aftermath to see how we did. Thanks so much, Bradley. Take care. Thanks.